0: Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Dereschai, as we seek life. Hello everybody, and welcome to the Der Experiment. Two weeks ago, we began the story of Jacob, this third patriarch, and the man who gets the most screen time, if you will in the book of Genesis. This man's story contains so many things that we can learn from that reaching the depths of his experience would take hours of contemplation. He does provide for us a great example, though, of an imperfect person who God chooses to use to bless the world. And as we go through this story and the stories of his children, we will see a lot of growth in the life of Jacob. But I believe that we will also see a lot of things that might surprise us, Two chapters ago, Esau was to receive the blessing from his father. He was the eldest. He was a warrior and hunter, strong and powerful and fit to rule according to human standards. Rather than Esau getting this blessing, though, Jacob, Rebekah, and circumstances conspired together to deceive Isaac into giving the blessing to Jacob instead. Now, Esau is understandably upset when he finds out that his younger brother has deceived him and received that blessing that should have been his. And so he plots to kill Jacob. And Jacob, at the behest of his parents, escapes to Laban's house in order to find a wife. If he is going to be the heir, he is going to need kids. He also needs to get away from Esau so that he is not killed in his sleep or in an unfortunate accident. And so last week we read of Jacob's journey to Laban's house. On the way he was greeted by God, and the blessing of Abraham is passed on to Jacob. And he is given a vision of God in heaven with a ladder and angels ascending and descending upon it. We learn in John 1 that this ladder is a representation of Yeshua, but that is something that is explored in greater detail by a great many other teachers, and so I'm going to leave that to them. Jacob gets to Laban's house, and he meets Jacob's youngest daughter, and he instantly falls in love with her. He works seven years for her hand in marriage, only to be deceived by his father-in-law at the last minute. The old switcheroo, nearly the same thing in reverse of what he had done to Esau and Isaac. A party was thrown with drink, and in his senseless state, being drunk, Jacob is in turn deceived by his uncle. Now, that's a little bit of reading into the text, but I think that we can accurately infer that based on the Hebrew word for the feast that was thrown by Laban. So He wakes in the morning after his wedding to discover that it was in fact Leah that he had taken his wife rather than his beloved Rachel. Upon this discovery, he complains to Laban, and he's rebuffed with the comment that it is not done that way in this house, to give precedence to the younger over the older. The elder was always the one who was given the most honor in the family in the ancient Near East. Putting the younger first was just wrong according to the ways of the world. Jacob had accomplished this travesty in his own family, and he expected Laban to do the same. But Laban had other plans. Seven days after his marriage to Leah, Jacob is given Rachel as well for a wife. Now, two weeks ago, Jacob had no wives, and suddenly he is beset with two, and sisters at that. Jacob brings into his home much of the dysfunction of his own family. The deception that he practices is a defining characteristic of his new father in law. And we will read later of deceptions practiced by one of his wives, as well as deceptions plural, that are accomplished by his sons. and We talked about this aspect of the dysfunction of Isaac's family last time, the tendency toward deception. But this was not the only dysfunctional part of Isaac's family that gets carried over into Jacob's. There is another that's under discussion in the story of Jacob that's just as important. In Genesis 25-28 we read that Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. There was a lot of favoritism going on in Isaac's family. And this too, alongside the deception, is something that now comes out in the story of Jacob and his wives, and it's something that will carry over into his relationship with his children in the upcoming weeks. So let's read this Parsha, and while we read it, be on the lookout, not just for the fact that favoritism existed in Jacob's family, but also look for the fallout, the side effects of playing favorites. That manifest themselves in the lives of the people in this story so let's go ahead and turn to genesis chapter 29. genesis 29 31 through 30 21. and hashem saw that leah was unloved and he opened her womb but rachel was barren and leah conceived and bore a son and she called his name reuven for she said for hashem has looked upon my affliction because now my husband is going to love me and she conceived again and bore a son and said Because Hashem has heard that I am unloved, he gave me this son too. And she called his name Shimon. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband is joined to me, because I have borne him three sons. So his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I praise Hashem. So she called his name Yehudah. And she ceased bearing. And when Rachel saw that she bore Yaakov no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Yaakov, Give me children or else I am going to die. And Yaakov's displeasure burned against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of Elohim who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And She said, See my female servant Bilhah? Go into her and let her bear for me, and let me be built up from her as well. So she gave him Bilhah, her female servant, as wife, and Yaakov went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Yaakov a son. And Rachel said, Elohim has rightly ruled my case, and has also heard my voice, and given me a son. So she called his name Dan. And Rachel's female servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Yaakov a second son. And Rachel said, With great wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and I have overcome. So she called his name Naphtali. And Leah saw that she had ceased bearing, and she took Zilpah, her female servant, and gave her to Yaakov his wife. And Leah's female servant Zilpah bore Yaakov a son. And Leah said, Fortune comes. So she called his name God. And Leah's female servant Zilpah bore Yaakov a second son. And Leah said, I am happy, for the daughter shall call me happy. So she called his name Asher. And Reuvin went in the days of wheat harvest and found love apples in the field, and brought them to his mother Leah. And Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's love apples. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you also take away my son's love apples too? And Rachel said, Therefore let him lie with you tonight for your son's love apples. And when Yaakov came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, Do come in to me, for indeed I have hired you with my son's love apples. And he lay with her that night. And Elohim listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Yaakov a fifth son. And Leah said, Elohim has given me my hire, because I have given my female servant to my husband. So she called his name Yissachar. And Leah conceived again and bore Yaakov a sixth son. And Leah said, Elohim has presented me with a good present. Now my husband is going to dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zevulun, and afterward she bore a daughter and called her name Dina. So in the 1930s in Britain, a new form of radio program was introduced to the world. This program used a method of storytelling that quickly became popular. And by the 60s, this genre entered wide distribution on both television and radio. It was an episodic serial that focused on people's relationships and the emotional impact that these relationships had on one another. When they were first created, it became commonplace for the stories to be sponsored by soap companies, because the primary demographic for this genre was the stay-at-home mom and wife. So what is this genre called today? It is, of course, the soap opera. Well, contrary to modern historians, the soap opera did not originate in the 30s with radio program. The story right here is a soap opera if ever there was one. One might even call this Parsha, The Days of Our Wives. <laughs> now, this Parsha contains three episodes back to back in serial recounting the highlights of the interpersonal relationships of Jacob and his wives, and then the emotional and relational fallout of the dysfunction in these relationships. Now this part of the story, this topic, it really began last week in verse 30. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served yet another seven years for Rachel. Now in this way we see that the dysfunction of Isaac and Rebekah towards their sons carried over into this generation, and now we begin to witness the fallout as it occurs with Jacob's wives rather than with just children. This week the text opens with, Hashem saw that Leah was unloved, and so he blessed her with a fruitful womb. Rachel, on the other hand, she suffers from the same condition that Jacob's mother and grandmother suffered from. She was barren. There's a lot to consider just in this first verse. Jacob wanted Rachel, but Rachel was barren. If Jacob had gotten his way and married Rachel first, he would have never married Leah. It would have been yet another generation before things could have really kicked off, and yet Jacob's move to Egypt was something that God had planned for all the way back in Genesis 15. If you remember back in Genesis 15, 13-14, when God cut the covenant with Abraham, it says, And he said to Avram, Know for certain that your seed are to be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. But the nation whom they serve I am going to judge and afterward, let them come out with great possessions. Now, this is something that we should be paying close attention to as I go through this scripture. This is a reminder of the fact that God does not operate in the moral manner the same way that we want Him to, or that we want to impose upon Him through our human theology. God knew from the beginning that this would happen, and He allows it. He plans for it. He tells Abraham, circumspectly, But he tells Abraham that this was going to happen. God's plan from Genesis 15 was for this deception and favoritism and human frailty to guide the course of history. And yet despite all of this, he works within these failings to bring about his plan of redemption of mankind to Eden. So once again we're reminded that our scale of morality is faulty, and I believe that we catch glimpses all throughout Scripture that this scale is spoken of as good and evil. But if we have an improper definition of good, we will completely miss out on this, and we will simply be baffled when stuff like this happens, because the way we define good is not the same as the way God defines good. Now, it's my assertion that what is right and good and moral is, in fact, the thing that will bring life and move the kingdom of God forward. Now Sometimes that means that what we consider to be moral must be transgressed in pursuit of life. Let me give you just a simple example. World War II Germany, a program was begun to round up Jews and put them into concentration camps. The Nazi government had convinced the people that the Jews were a threat to their way of life and that they were less than human. And so the populace, for the most part, they went along with this travesty. Throughout the country, there were those who put their lives on the line to save as many lives as possible through whatever means possible. We're all familiar with the stories of people who saved lives, or those who are hidden away. I mean, we have stories like Schindler's List and the Diary of Anne Frank, the two popularized stories of things that occurred at this time in order to save the lives of Jews who were facing extermination. Well, since 1953, the Yad Vashem, or Israel's Holocaust Museum, has recognized nearly 27,000 people as being involved in one way or another in the saving of the lives of Jews from Nazi territories. All it takes is going through several stories of these individuals who saved Jews in various ways before you find out that nearly every single one of them had to participate in deceiving or killing Germans. Now, I've heard teachers use these stories to make the point that these individuals were, in fact, sinning while doing this because they were participating in active deception of their God appointed leaders. They then go on to make the distinction that if we look to the weightier matters of the Torah, then while these people were In fact, disobeying God's law in order to save lives, they were keeping the weightier matters of Torah by saving life, and that somehow trumps it. I disagree. I think if we look at this Torah on a scale of life versus death rather than a moral standard of good versus evil, and we will find that there was no sin in these deceptions. If we look at sin as the transgression of the covenant rather than simply a set of rules, there's no transgression. Was the letter of the law broken? Sure, and if the Torah were a moral standard, then there would still be sin in these actions. But if that's the case, however, then Yeshua sinned when He healed on the Sabbath, right? His instructions to save a donkey from the ditch on the Sabbath is an allowance of a lesser sin, after all, right? And so, it could be seen as Yeshua allowing and participating in sin. But this can't be, because Yeshua was, in fact, sinless. So, if this is the standard, there would still have been sin on his part, but there was not. If, however, sin is a transgression against life, the way it's defined in God's law, and against the God of life, then there is no sin in saving the donkey. None at all. It is the righteous action to take on any day because life comes first. There is no guilt incurred, there's no transgression that is lesser in this case. The Torah itself has been upheld. That was a bit of a detour, but this shift of paradigm is not something that is easily accomplished or that's going to happen overnight. And so when we find examples of life taking precedence over what we consider to be morality, I like to point them out because the Bible is full of examples such as this, as we've already seen and as we will continue to see. In this case, it was always God's plan to allow for Jacob to deceive, and in turn to be deceived. Because without this deception, Leah would not become Jacob's wife, and human history would have been very different. The Jews would never have existed because Judah would never have been born. The same thing with Joseph. Without his brother's bitterness, betrayal, and deception, Jacob does not have a son waiting for him in Egypt to settle them in the choicest land of the country when they migrate in response to this upcoming famine. Scripture is full of countless examples and counterexamples of this type of thing occurring. Just a few chapters ago was another example. God planned on Rebekah and Jacob deceiving Isaac. His plan for Messiah required this to happen. In my mind, this paradigm shift is absolutely necessary at this point in history. We need it right now as a people. How many of you feel bad when you end up with a donkey-in-the-ditch situation on the Sabbath? Well, don't. None of you should. Life in the kingdom of God takes precedence. The righteous thing to do is to find and to pursue life as defined by God and by the Torah in any given situation. All right, so I'm going to step off my soapbox here. Yeah, a soapbox we're talking about a soap opera. I'm going to step off my soapbox here and let's get back to our story. So, as the story opens, God looks on Bila with favor, and she has four sons in quick succession. First one, Reuben, meaning look a son. Then there's Shimon, which means hearing. We usually call him Simeon. Then there's Levi or Levi, which means joined to to twine, or to twist, or the joining together of two things in harmony. And then fourth, there's Judah, which means praise. And that's not just any kind of praise. But the name comes from the word yadah, which is demonstrative worship, which itself comes from the Hebrew word yad, or hand. So it's praising with your hands, not just lifting your voice. Now, I don't know if there's anything to this, but three of the first four sons have a connection to sight sound and touch three of our senses and that probably doesn't mean anything but I just found that really interesting So regardless of whether this means anything the first episode of the soap opera it ends here okay so this is the whole setup right here just these four sons being born and their names being given then Leia ceasing to bear So what will happen one wife is loved by her husband the other is not the unloved has been shown favor by the God of life and given four sons that hasn't worked out so well in the past. The loved one's womb has closed up and has been denied life. We've been introduced to the conflict along with the wives of Jacob based on his favoritism towards them, based on the flesh and the sense of affection that we call love in our modern understanding. And yet, God is showing favoritism towards the sisters based on justice, compassion, and mercy. For he has chosen Leah over Rachel, the opposite of Jacob's decision. So what's going to happen? Tune in next week. Welcome back to Days of Our Wives. In this episode, we will continue the story of Rachel and Leah, the wives of Jacob. As the story opens, Rachel is distraught. So, in the ancient Near East, it was a woman's duty to provide children for her husband. We have records from several ancient cultures that reveal if a woman did not produce a child in the first two years of her marriage, she was considered barren by law, and her husband was allowed to divorce her. Not just allowed, but expected to divorce her. Because it was incumbent upon the woman to become pregnant quickly, or she could lose her status and her security. Now, Being unable to bear children, she could have no honor as a wife in her society, and through that her husband also would lose honor with all of those around him. Now, Rachel is the loved wife. She is the favored and the honored wife by her husband. But without children, she runs the risk of losing her station and having her sister take her place as the loved, as the honored. In this situation, she suddenly envies her sister, and the fact is it's probably for the first time. And so she begs Jacob, give me a child or I will die. Now that seems pretty extreme as Jacob is left in between these sisters that are vying for his attention and his affection. One, he never really wanted. The other, that he did want, is making impossible demands of him. I mean, it's not like he's not trying to have a child with her after all. As the favored wife, Jacob would have spent most nights with her. In fact, at this point, it may be that Jacob had abandoned Leah's bed entirely, which is why it says that she ceased bearing at the end of the last chapter. This abandonment of Leah may have been a direct response to Rachel's request for children. In his heart, Jacob is deciding what to do, and she says, give me children or I will die. Well, he doesn't want her to die, and so he decides, I guess I'll spend every night with Rachel to give her a child. That's what I want. That's what she wants. I can't chance Leah becoming pregnant again and harming and shaming my beloved wife even further. Fortunately for Rachel, there is a societal prescription that could be used when a woman of honor was barren. This is something we've already seen in Scripture back in Genesis 16 when Sarah gave her handmaid Hagar to Abraham to act as a surrogate mother. Now when a woman was barren, she could choose another woman to act as a surrogate mother for her children. We've talked about that before. There was no in vitro fertilization, and so that meant having her husband sleep with another woman in order to produce a child in her name. The wife then got to pick the name for the child, and according to law, the child was the wife's child rather than the mother's child. It's a form of adoption, surrogate pregnancy. We have similar things like that today, only we use in vitro fertilization so that the act of sex doesn't have to occur between two unmarried people. So, Rachel seizes upon this option because she's seeing her honor slip away. And so, she sends her handmaid into Jacob's bed, and the handmaid conceives. Now, this type of marriage, this type of concubinage, Uh, was not one where the husband could then visit that woman at any time of his own choosing. It was one where the wife could, instead of going into her husband herself on the night that she was allowed to, she could then send her handmaid in her stead at her choosing, not his. Jacob could not simply go into Bilhah whenever he wanted to, whenever he liked, like he could with his wives. The sole purpose of her position was to bear children in the name of the wife and that was the only reason that she was allowed to enter his bed was at his wife's bidding now the first son of bilhah or rachel is then dan the judge and she says because god has now judged in my favor and then bilhah has a second son and this reveals that rachel was not simply content to have a child in her name but rather she was entering into competition with her sister. The one who has the most is the most honored in her mind. And so she sends her handmaid in again. And the name of the second child really highlights that this competition is going on. Because Bilhah conceives a second time and Rachel names the child Naphtali. Now this is a very interesting name as it is a play on the name of one of Leah's sons. Because the name Naphtali literally means to wrestle. But it's derived from the Hebrew word patal, which means to twist or to twine. So we remember, if we look back on Levi, Leah's third son, his name was to join, in the manner of two things joined together in unity, a coming together, a bond. But Naphtali's name is of two things joined or twined together in struggle, fighting with each other, trying to one-up each other. So upon consideration, it seems as if this name of the son was supposed to be a purposeful stick in the eye of Leah, provoking her sister through the name of her child. And what was that final phrase of chapter 29? Leah had ceased bearing. So now it's as if Rachel is saying, I have to, I'm going to catch up, my sister. So what choice does Leah have if she is to continue to retain any sense of honor? So she too resorts to the only option available to her. She sends her servant girl in as a surrogate mother in her stead because she has ceased bearing for whatever reason, whether that's God imposed or whether that's because Jacob has just stopped seeing her. Now this method of operation, using these women as pawns, was contrary to the intended purpose of the tradition of allowing a woman to choose a surrogate. This was not a custom that was to be used to get kids to one-up your sister, but rather it was reserved for that woman who was barren. Well, Leah likely saw her position fading as Rachel had now produced two sons, and she was no longer barren for whatever reason. Now, I want you to bear in mind, this type of concubinage that's going on here is not the same type of concubinage that goes on in the time of the kings, where David has concubines and Solomon has concubines, it's not the same purpose behind these, so don't, don't get those confused. This is a completely different scenario. So Zilpah goes in and she bears a child, and once again the child's name is a commentary to Rachel, her sister. Now We commonly understand that gad means fortune, and we think, oh look, yay, she was lucky that she had a child. And that's true, but gad actually has several meanings in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it simply means a troop or a company. Leah seems to be in some way using this name to say, you stand no chance of catching me because I'm going to have a troop of children and you're just going to have a few. It's only when we look at the surrounding cultures that we find that the name God also means fortune, which is what's actually specifically called out in the text. Isaiah sixty-five eleven uses this word. It says, but you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune or gad, and fill a cup mixed with wine for destiny, or mini. These two gods, gad and mini, fortune and destiny, they were the twin gods in ancient cultures. But gad doesn't simply mean fortune in general, as in I'm going to make a whole lot of money or be successful in my business venture. It precisely means sexual fortune in bearing children. And we have several examples of this being the primary thrust of the word God or fortune, especially as we look at surrounding cultures around Israel at that time. Now Leah named her third child Levi, perhaps as a way to challenge her sister's status as the favored wife, in essence saying that I am now joined to Jacob through my multiple children. Rachel then named her second son through Bilhah, Naftali, as to say, You think that you're joined to him? I'm wrestling you for that position and I'm going to win. So then Leah names her fifth son through Zilpah, after a god of fortune through sexual unity, as well as after a troop of soldiers. This back and forth competition of these women was something that was out there for everyone to see, because the names of the children were a commentary on this struggle. Leia sends her servant in at least one more time, and perhaps not, because in the case of the next child. It doesn't say that she conceived again. It's entirely possible that Zilpah had twins at this point, and that Zilpa only went in one time. However, this next child is named Asher. I am happy. Happy about what? I'm kicking my sister's butt. I've got six kids at this point. She'll never catch up. And here comes the end of episode two of the 17th century BC soap opera. Rachel's behind, but she's begun to make some headway through her machinations and political maneuverings that were available to her. But then her own sister uses those same machinations and pulls forward again. Oh, The competition just gets stronger and stronger. Anxiety and tension grips the family as each member is seeking only their own good, their own advancement, their own honor as they fight with each other for it. And so comes the end of episode two. Come back next second as we return. To Days of Our Wives. And so it is in episode three that the soap opera begins once again. Welcome everybody to Days of Our Wives. Uh, I hope that you can see now why I'm calling this story a soap opera. Because the stories on TV today, they have nothing on this. This is this is absolutely nuts the way that these women are treating each other. In this episode, it opens with Reuven, Leia's oldest son, and he finds some mandrakes in some translation. My translation uses love apples. Now there's been a lot of debate as to what exactly these are referring to, what this word means. The, the Hebrew word used here is dudeh, it's derived from the word dud, which means a pot or a basket. It's actually very little help in trying to figure out what this word means. This word is found only in this story and two other places in all of Scripture. It's used once in Jeremiah 24.1, where, contextually, it definitely means a basket, a pot, or a jar. The other is in Song of Songs 7.13, which uses it in the same manner as what's being referred to here. Now, Song of Solomon is that erotic Hebrew love poetry that we usually don't tend to read just because of the imagery that it contains. Well, whatever these things are being used in Song of Solomon and being used in this chapter— They appear to be an aphrodisiac of some sort, and that's something that's pretty widely agreed on by most scholars. Uh, It's postulated that it was thought that they may have favored procreation, so not only are they an aphrodisiac, they will make a woman fertile. Now, it makes sense to an ancient mind that if you have a fruit that arouses sexual desire, then it would also produce fruit from that desire. It's not been proven that this is what was thought beyond the aphrodisiac properties, It's just been speculated, but it does explain the reason that Rachel would want those fruits. She doesn't need to be in Jacob's bed. She had Jacob's bed. She didn't need him to be aroused. He was aroused for her, but she didn't have children, and that's the thing she desired the most. So why would she be willing to give up her husband's bed for a time if it meant increasing her chances of carrying a child? There's likely nothing more that she would want at this point than to carry a child for herself, to prove herself worthy as the favored wife, because even though she has two sons through her handmaid, she still has not proven herself worthy by carrying a child. So, she buys the mandrakes from Leia by offering the only thing that she could offer to Leia that Leia might want from her. What is it she offers? A knight with her own husband. Leia... You can go see your husband again if you give me these mandrakes, if you sell them to me. Verse 15, it gives us the idea that Jacob was no longer visiting Leah in an intimate way. And I said before, it appears as though this occurred sometime after the birth of Judah. Because she responds, isn't it enough that you've taken my husband, that you want to now take my son's mandrakes as well? Jacob's own favoritism was denying Leah the intimacy and what we read later in the Torah, it's her right as a wife to have that intimacy. And as we'll soon find out, he was also denying her children. He was denying himself children. Because she goes into Jacob's bed that night and conceives from this one night with her husband. She names her own fifth son Issachar, saying that she has been given the payment for giving her female servant to her husband. She didn't want to give her female servant to her husband. She felt as if it was her duty and it hurt her. But she realizes here, as she bears her fifth son, that this may have been a necessity to regain Jacob's bed. She regrets giving her handmaid to Jacob. Why was it that she counted this as a necessity? Was it to gain children? No, she had children. She needed a foothold in his life. She wanted a continuing relationship with him. And, frankly, she wanted to beat her sister. But if Jacob wasn't coming to her anymore, and her sister was now gaining honor through her handmaid, what choice did she have to turn his back towards her, to get him to take notice of her? Well, after this, he apparently begins to pay some more attention to Leah. Because she soon bears another son, Zebulun, exalted or honored. Leah sees the birth of Zebulun as a great victory. I will be honored now. He will come and dwell with me. Finally, I will be recognized as his wife with full rights. And then Leah bears a daughter after that, Dina. Once again, Leah, in the naming of her daughter, is providing a commentary on her sister and everyone else. Because the name Dina is simply a female form of the name Dan. It's as if she's saying, you named your first son through your handmaid Dan because you believed that God had judged in your favor. But now we see the truth of it. God has in reality judged in my favor. I have been returned to the place where I should have been all along. A full wife of Jacob. Not a cast off. Not unloved. This equilibrium that had been missing for so long as Jacob shuffled off one wife for the other has been returned to Jacob's family. He still has his favorites, but at least the unfavored one's no longer an outcast. Perhaps at this point Rachel has also been humbled before her sister. I may be reading into things, but there seems to be something going on in Rachel's heart at this time as well. Perhaps she recognizes the injustice that she has perpetrated on her sister through her jealousy. For it is only now, after her sister has been proven repeatedly to be the better wife for Jacob in the realm of providing sons, that Hashem finally smiles on Rachel and blesses her with a son. And she names him Joseph, which means Yah has added or augmented, increased or gathered together. And thus ends this third episode of the soap opera. Leah, now back in the home as an active part of her own marriage, once again part of the family, and Rachel finally granted her deepest desire, motherhood. Both have been given what they desired the most. The conflict has been resolved, but the path to get there was not a pretty one. And in the next text, in the next chapters as we go forward, we will find in the future Leah and Rachel working together for the most part. Their differences behind them, and they are now unified behind Jacob with a singular goal before them. So, what can we take from all of this? Well, one thing I always like to do is ask, what does this Parsha teach us about God? And from beginning to end, this Parsha provides a commentary of Hashem as the one who gives life. It starts with the very first verse that we've just examined, and ends with verse 22, and it carries through the short vignettes throughout this Parsha. Hashem is the God who gives life, no others, Him and Him alone. It's not incumbent on the people, chapter 30, verses 1 through 3. It's not something that can be achieved through superstition or even medication, chapter 30, verse 14 through 16. This facet of God's nature seems to be something that this Parsha is making a point to highlight. Another characteristic of Hashem that's highlighted in this Parsha is found in the very first verse and continues throughout any time we see God's character in Scripture it's incumbent upon us to consider our own calling to act in the image of God. The more we learn about His character, the better we see how we are to act ourselves. The first verse of our Parsha teaches us that God shows grace to the unloved, the one who was not desired or even desirable, the outcast. In His justice He gives honor to those with no honor. All too often this idea is steeped in what Yeshua did on our behalf, or in the way in which He ate with sinners and prostitutes and how Yeshua touched and healed the leper. This concept is thought to have begun with Yeshua as if He instituted something new by acting in this way. But it's not a Yeshua-specific quality. This is a God quality, and it's one that we ourselves need to work to mimic as His image-bearers for the Most High God. This is His character. And when we act in His image, we will act in this way. We too will give honor to those who have none. We will show grace, compassion, mercy, and kindness to those who are unloved or even unlovely." So what does this Parsha teach us about ourselves? Is there anything applicable that we can discover in these pages? In the last Parsha, Jacob had his deceptive nature revealed to him through the events of his interaction with Laban. In this parsha, Jacob has his nature of favoritism revealed to him through his dealing with his wives. Is this all that there is? Deception and favoritism is bad. Don't do those things. Or is there more? As we continue to read, Jacob will, in a few chapters, be renamed to Israel. But he's not yet that man. This process that Jacob is going through right now is part of the process of becoming Israel. These stories, they show us more than just the specifics of favoritism and deception, but they provide for us the prescription for overcoming them. Discovering the ways in which you yourself are falling short, and then making the changes necessary to leave it all behind. To act in justice when we've recognized that we've been unjust. To act in truth when we are shown falsehood in ourselves. To act in righteousness when we've been shown to be acting in wickedness. This is the picture that we get here in these early stories of Jacob, a man who is not yet who he should be. He's not a good or a nice person. He's a man whose only thought is wickedness from his youth, but he's being changed through his experience of sin in others, to become a person who's worthy of being called Israel. And this should be the goal of each and every one of us to be counted worthy of being called Israel. In the case of Jacob, it has been deception and favoritism, both things that can be sin. But I think that we all too often focus on these specific sins as if we're just given specifics and not examples. We don't allow our understanding of what is being said to apply to our own sin. We read the story and you say, well, I'm not a deceiver. I don't show favoritism to my children or my wives, so hey, I get a gold star, I'm not like Jacob but this example is more than just the examples of deception and favoritism. It's an example of a person having sin revealed in their life and then working to deal with that sin. If we keep our examination only at the level of deception and favoritism, we'll miss this, and this story just simply becomes a soap opera. The fact is, though, that God will use difficult circumstances in our lives to reveal the sin within ourselves. He will then give the opportunity to recognize and to deal with that sin before it can devour us. Now it's on us to allow his discipline to find its place and to do what it was designed to do, to return us to the image of God as we were intended to be from the beginning. And that's something that we can apply to ourselves from this passage. We must be aware of ourselves to the point where we make the changes necessary to become worthy of the name Israel. Seeking the path of life means destroying the things of death, those things within us that separate us from the Most High. And so it is that this pursuit continues, the pursuit of life in all of its form. So as you walk the path of life, it is necessary to deresh chai, to seek life as God has described it for us. I wish you success in that endeavor. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.